Unlock the past and safeguard your memories with ScanMyPhotos.com. Here's our special promo code, GoDigital, to get a whopping up to 50% off your photo scanning order. Don't let your cherished moments fade away. Digitize them now with precision and care. Whether it's old slides, photos, or films, bring them into the digital age and relive those precious memories. This is an affiliate promotion, meaning we may earn a commission if you take advantage of this fantastic deal. Act fast, preserve your history, and save big with Go Digital at ScanMyPhotos.com. Hi, I'm Maureen Taylor, the photo detective. I really love family photographs, all of them. From the mystery images you find in shoeboxes and albums, to the pictures you snap with your digital devices. No mystery is too small. A simple question about an image can lead to new stories of your ancestors. This means you can count on me to help you identify the people in them, offer solutions for preserving and organizing them, and yes, even guide you in the various ways to gather and share picture stories with your relatives. So my guest today is Becca Bender of the Rhode Island Historical Society. And she was on the podcast several months ago talking about the COVID archive that the Providence Public Library, Providence Rhode Island Public Library and the Rhode Island Historical Society developed to document these interesting times. But today Becca has agreed to come back on the podcast and talk about home movies. And Becca, thank you so much for doing this again. Yeah, my pleasure. It's nice to be here. So when I decided I would digitize all my home movies, I called you or actually emailed you and then we hopped on the phone uh, because I wanted to know what's changed and what I should do and you know, what I should ask for. And you had some great advice, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about first about how you got started with what you're doing and you're on a mission to help individuals as well make sure they have the right information when they go off to digitize. Sure. So, so in my role at the Historical Society as, as kind of the curator and archivist for all moving image collections, you know, I oversee a lot, a lot of stuff here. The, the vast majority of the collections at the Historical Society are actually local TV news. However, we do have interspersed throughout the collections home movies from a variety of Rhode Islanders. And those are things that that really range from the 1920s up through now contemporary times. And I think something that's important to remember about home movies is that we are making home movies today. Since since there has been really the ability to record moving images, we've, we've had home movies. So when you think about the preservation of home movies, there are lots of different kinds of home movies that you're going to need to preserve. And I think we can sort of talk about them each in their different formats because they have really different properties and, and really kind of different requirements. 
But as far as sort of my personal interest in home movies and, and sort of how that intersects with the historical society, I think that because most of our collections here are news or newsreel, so theatrical versions of the news before we had television, and generally moving images that depict life from the perspective of an outsider, right, of the media, whoever, whoever that professional is, whoever the media was at the time, that lens is very different than the lens of a home movie, right? And home movies are people depicting themselves, depicting their families, depicting their communities from the perspective that they are choosing. Um, you had to say what was the very first, first home movie yep. that exists that you know of, not just in the collection, but in general, mm-hmm. what would you say and what format would that be? Well, I think in some ways, I mean, the, the first films, if, if we think about things like Edison in 1895, filming, you know, filming a kiss, filming a sneeze, filming a train. I mean, in some ways, they're not that different than what we think of when we talk about home movies, right? Which is just filming of daily life of the people who are around you. So no, Edison wasn't necessarily filming with the thought of this is my family home movie, but I think the content is is actually quite similar. And I think that from the earliest times, the people who had access to moving image recording material were in essence often making home movies because they were sort of filming what was around them. In terms of when home movies though really became more kind of accessible to say the public is really when we went from having only 35 millimeter film to then having 16 millimeter film. And 16 millimeter film came about in um, 1923. And that was sort of the, the first step in going from a solely professional realm to an amateur realm. Now, those amateurs who had access to 16 millimeter film were still obviously people who had a certain amount of means, a certain amount of training. I don't want to say it was available to every family by any stretch. But when we kind of went to that that smaller gauge format, that sort of less professional format, that was really when home movies, I would say, took off. Still in this world where somebody has to have a certain amount of disposable income to have that money, buy that film, pay for the processing. But it was, as we sort of move through time, that means of production, that means of creating home movies does become more widely accessible. So the earliest home movies in my collection are from the late 1950s. Okay, in your personal in my personal collection. In your personal collection, yep. There's just yep. three of them. Okay, and so in my family, I have the home movie collection that my grandfather shot, my dad's dad. My dad and his twin brother were born in 1947, and the earliest films that I've seen are them still in a crib, I would say under a year old. So I would put them, you know, around 1948 is probably the earliest in my family's collection. Mm. So I think what you're, what we're talking about here is that it varies from family to family based on means and accessibility to the equipment. But certainly by the 19, late 1960s, having a movie film camera, Super 8, was not an unusual thing to have in the family. The next big shift came when Kodak released 8mm film, which was in 1935. So when we went from 16mm to 8mm, was when, again, things got less expensive, got more accessible. And then 
later again, 30 years later, then we had Super 8, which was an even more widely accessible and quite truthfully a format that needed even less training because one of the big differences between eight millimeter and six and super eight was that eight millimeter still needed to be loaded into a camera in the dark and you still needed to have some level of skill to do it. The big shift with super eight, in addition to the frame size being a little different, was that it came in a cartridge and you just popped it into the camera. So it was very different in the sense that it was a much easier to load format. And then you sent it off to the lab and Kodak took that cartridge and they sent it back to you on a reel that you were able to project yourself. But it was an easier, it, it was easier to be a camera operator of Super 8 than it was of say eight millimeter or 16 millimeter. So before we go into the digital age, first we go into the analog video age. And that's also a really important part of the home movie story is that you start seeing video formats that were analog and smaller tapes. So again, so video sort of first comes on the scene as a professional format, and then you move into a home movie sort of consumer camcorder era. And we had the, the primary formats that were in use at that time were something called VHSC. And if folks remember VHS tape, which is what you would rent from the movie, you know, from the video store, VHSC was basically a smaller in size cassette tape that you could pop into a camera, you could record. And then what you did was you sort of put it into a, a, a videotape shell that fit into your normal VCR and you could play back your movies. So it was the VHS format. It was just a smaller scale tape. And then the other kind of option that people had was eight millimeter tape, which was video eight. And then lighter along came high eight, which was just a slightly higher quality version. And then later we get into digital video formats that are still on cassette, things like mini DV, which was quite ubiquitous as being a home movie format in the 90s and early 2000s. And eventually, of course, the cassette tapes go away and we all record digital video directly in file form, right? And that's what we're doing today. We're recording on our cell phones or our digital cameras. So all home movies, just different sort of formats throughout time. So the challenge for anyone that whose family has been involved in home movie making for generations is what are you going to do with all this stuff? And do you even still have the equipment to play it? So my perspective on that is I have one of those little mini DV cameras from the nineties yep. and actually have some of those tapes. So I still have the camera, it turns out. So I dug it out and then I had to order the batteries. Now I have to figure out how, if I can remember how to make it work. And then I was trying to find out what was on the, all these VHS tapes I had. So I went on eBay and found a VCR. <laughs> That's of course I hadn't kept my VCR. What do I need it for? So I've been sort of getting up to speed with all the old equipment, but yeah. then I decided, oh, this is ridiculous. There must be a better way, which is when we spoke and we went through the sort of things you should do, which is you have to keep up with the new technology if you want to be able to view these. Like I couldn't view the VHSs, but I can have them digitized. And a lot of people come to me and say, oh, I had them all done on CDs or DVDs. And I'm like, yeah, well, you need to do it again to a, another format. So right. what kind of advice would you give 
to someone like myself or someone else with all these variety of formats, when you go to a company, what should you ask for? And obviously we're going to say you want MP4. Well, probably. (laughs) um, (laughs) Maybe for now. (laughs) You know, I mean, I think a first thing to always keep in mind when we talk about this is the choices you're going to make today about how to access your home movies might be the right choices for today, but five years from now, they might be very different. So the first thing to remember in that, when you're thinking in that way is always keep the original format. Absolutely always keep the original format, right? If you had brought your eight millimeter film home movies to a top of the line lab 20 years ago, they would have returned to you something on standard definition videotape. And if you had thrown away that original film, you would be trapped in a standard def video world of something from the late 90s, early 2000s, let's say. If you were to go back to that original film today and send it to a lab, it would be scanned on a film scanner. Every individual frame of film would essentially be an individual photo image, basically, right? The equivalent of almost having a TIFF of of everything. It could be scanned at a resolution up to 5K, 6K, 8K today. Not that I think that's necessary, but it but it could be. So you have to always think about as time marches on, the technology is ever evolving and you may get more out of your original format in the future than you can get out of it today. So first thing, always, always, always save the original. And then I think what you need to think about is how are you going to use this material? How are you going to make it accessible to whom? What do you think you might want to do with it, right? So if you're talking about scanning your film home movies, things that are on celluloid, at this point in time, I would say it absolutely makes sense to scan those at at least high definition resolution, which is more or less agreed to be 1920 by 1080. I mean, part of the, all of this involves some sort of technical thinking about the fact that your home movies were the shape of a television. They weren't a television at the time, sorry. So a four by three television, not a 16 by nine widescreen television, which is what we're all accustomed to today. But I would say you could scan your home movies. It's worth scanning them at say a 2K resolution. And lots of people have 2K televisions now and certainly 2K computer monitors. What you're always trying to do is sort of balance out getting the most quality out of your original medium without doing such overkill that you wind up with some enormous file format that your computer can't open, that you don't want to deal with the storage to pay for. And, you know, that's so sort of cumbersome and large that it becomes an an unruly file format to deal with. So ideally, and what you said about MP4, um, MP4 is a, a very good universal format right now. It can be read by Macs and by Windows machines. There are other formats that are only read by one or the other. For example, AVI is a Windows only format. If you're a Mac user, that's not going to work for you. You can always take a video file and transcode it, run it, kind of essentially re re-encode the ones and zeros so that it's readable by your machine but you want to go to the most universal format you can. And that would be an MP4. However, 
that dot mp4 versus say dot avi dot you know mkv dot mov that we're all used to that's actually only one part of the equation of a video file the other file and i don't want to go too too deep into the technical weeds but the other part of it is what's known as the codec which is really like the algorithm that's being used to organize those ones and zeros so Again, going to something very universal that is going to be acceptable quality for most families, I would say you want to do something called H.264 MP4. That's kind of like the cleanest thing to do. If you're going to broadcast that, your home movies on television, you think somebody in a documentary is going to use them, you're going to want higher quality. But for most families, that H.264 MP4 is, is what you want. Sorry, that was an in-the-weeds probably in the weeds answer but that's uh, all right that's that's interesting because when I had my home movies digitized I went to a company two two different companies Mm -hmm. and one company is a local company and and one is not and with the local company I was actually able to specify and so anyone that's out there listening can talk to a conversion company, maybe locally, and find out if they can do that format. I know I could do 1080 MP4. Uh, I don't know that they offered that higher level MP4, but the company I mailed some reels off to was only able to give me an AVI file. And you're right, I'm on a Mac. So I had to transcode the whole thing. Right which was annoying, actually. Right, right. You know, and and the other thing, I mean, the other thing I think to think about when you're having your your home movies transferred is what do you want to get back? So also back in the old days, so originally somebody would have given you, let's say, a VHS tape. Then we moved into this time, as you say, where they gave it to you on a CD or a DVD. And there are people today, and and, and I might potentially even advocate for this, where... If you have your home movies on a DVD, let's say, at least there is a physical item that is somewhere in your house that somebody else in the future might stumble upon. I mean, I think this opens up a bigger question about what does it mean for all of us to archive our personal digital lives? And that could mean a photograph or a home movie or an oral history recording or whatever it may be. One of the reasons that we all have home movies in some ways, I would say, or we meaning, you know, families down the line, we meaning the Rhode Island Historical Society, is that oftentimes somebody's cleaning out their house and they find a bunch of film cans in a drawer, or they're cleaning out, somebody passed away and somebody stumbles on on the family home movies. If we're talking about digital files and those could be born digital files we created on our cell phones. I mean, I have footage of teaching my niece how to ride a bicycle two years ago, right? That originated as born digital home movie. And that's home movie that I want to keep. I want my niece to be able to show that to her kids. But how is anybody going to stumble on that in the future that just lives in my digital personal world, whether that's on Google Cloud or iPhoto or or hard drives in my apartment, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So in the, the genealogy world, the joke is when I die, no one's going to turn on my computer and look at my genealogy files. Right. Right. So the same. Right. It's the same issue. Is somebody going to turn on your computer yeah. and say, oh, look, 
here's a whole file that says home movies. Right. Probably not, but they right. stumble across the DVD. It's tangible. Yep. Exactly. Now on the flip side, DVD, not an archival format. It's not something, it's not a format that has real longevity and it needs a player, right? You need to be able to stick a DVD into a machine to be able to read it. Used to be every computer had a DVD drive. Now, as we all know, none of our computers come with DVD drives anymore. VCRs are no longer manufactured anywhere in the world. They were still manufacturing them in Japan up until a handful of years ago, but that stopped. DVD players are the next thing to go. So we're always sort of fighting against playback equipment and obsolescence at the same time. What's brilliant about celluloid film and why it's really the easiest thing to deal with is you pick it up and you shine light through it and there's a picture on it and you can see it. <laughs> and that's really, really simple. But a videotape is magnetic particles arranged on plastic. A DVD is ones and zeros on a piece of plastic that's got to get turned, put into a machine. Anything you shoot on your cell phone, again, ones and zeros that were created at a moment in time when your computer understood what a QuickTime file was or an H.264 MP4 file was. But a lot of this stuff also, these are proprietary formats. So we are also relying on companies, quite truthfully, that control some of these technical specifications and we're also relying on these companies very heavily when we think about the cloud. Everybody talks about the cloud. Oh, it's safe because I put it in the cloud. Well, cloud is owned by Google. And while it is somewhat inconceivable to think of a time when Google doesn't exist, think of, I mean, quite truthfully, think of the hack. Think of, you know, it can happen. Things go down. I mean, MySpace was a huge, very important platform for a long time for folks who remember MySpace in the kind of earlier internet days. MySpace just went under, disappeared, and all of these people who had their whole worlds up on their MySpace pages lost those whole worlds. And those worlds included videos and photos and all of that. So you kind of have to, I think we put a lot of faith in, in the cloud <laughs> without really thinking about what is the cloud and who controls the cloud? And again, then that sort of brings you back to the tangible thing. Is it better to have that tangible DVD? There's something about having both. I mean, I would say, I mean, if I had to kind of advocate for the approach, the approach is always keep the original and, and really think about how many different ways can I have this item? I mean, and even when you go to the digital, one of you know, the most important thing about digital preservation is having backups having lots of copies, having, you know, you have a copy on your computer, you have a copy on an external hard drive, you had another copy in the cloud. When you need to think about the fact that you're constantly sort of migrating that stuff forward in time so that as technology is changing, whether that's the hardware or the software, you can still access your stuff. That's the hard part. And that's really hard. And that's part, that's hard for individuals and it's hard for archives. I mean, we're, I mean, I have people tell me all the time they scan all their photos and that's that's done so they could throw it all away. Right. And I'm like, no, right. no, 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 no. You have to keep the original. Keep the right. original. Well, what do I need those negatives for? No, you, you need the negatives. They give you yep. a better scan than the picture itself. Right. Uh, right. And with all the medium we just talked about, you got to find a place 
to store it all and store it safely because yes. at some point you might need it again. Yes, yes. And I'm assuming the basics apply here, which are acid and lignin-free boxes yeah. for everything. And, you know, most important thing, you know, cool and dry, right? I mean, you know, most of your films, you know, home movies, if we're talking about, say, you know, celluloid film, most of those are going to be in metal cans, usually, you know, if, sure, if, if you can put them into, you know, plastic vented cans, archival cans, fantastic, <laughs> you know, your films will be happier for it. But realistically, if your films are in the original metal cans they came in, and you keep them, you know, in low humidity, and relatively low temperature, like film is pretty robust. Film is pretty robust because those ones I have from the late 1950s are in yeah. the boxes that were shipped back from the processing. From Kodak, sure. And they're looking pretty good. Yeah. And in many ways, those boxes are sometimes better than the cans because the boxes allowed for some level of venting, right? So, you know, most of our home movies are the kind of film that they were shot on is, is celluloid cellulose acetate and acetate film as it deteriorates it gives us acetic acid which is vinegar so if you if you go to your home movies and you smell vinegar I have a, a colleague who used to say if I go around film and then I suddenly have an urge to eat potato chips I know that my films have vinegar syndrome and so if you start smelling if you can smell vinegar that means your films have actually started a deterioration process that is is giving you an indication you need to deal with this sooner rather than later. And I would say dealing with it in that case is hopefully getting it to a lab where they can scan, where they can scan your films and, and get that image off of the film sooner rather than later. But also you can slow down that deterioration process by putting your films into colder temperatures. So seriously, like stick them in your freezer. I mean, like that will, that will be better for your films and, and just know that one of the worst things for your films or your videotapes, really any of your mediums is wild fluctuations in temperature. So if you do put your films into say the freezer, you can't just take them out into a 80 degree room and suddenly, you know, open the can and look at them. You know, you would need to be gradual in that sense, but, but essentially. But I do the I, nesting, the nesting. So I have them in the process, the box they were processed in. Then yep. I have them in an acid and lignin-free box. And then I have yep. them in a cabinet. So yes. there's a buffer there between yes. any temperature and humidity yes. changes, right. which is yep. great because I'm not going to yep. stick them in the freezer. And the other consideration, of course, is cost. You have to transfer what is a good budget-friendly point for you. Yes. As well. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, and, and it's not, it's not cheap to transfer your stuff that's on film or on video. There are, you know, there are some ways of doing stuff yourself at times. There is a machine. We actually have one at the historical society. There's a machine called a Wolverine, which is, I would say kind of the if you had a lot, a lot of home movies, eight millimeter or super eight for $400, you can buy a Wolverine. It is slow, <laughs> does about two frames a second, and it doesn't make the most beautiful transfers, but it'll get you access to your material. And potentially if you have a lot of films that you send out to a lab, it's gonna cost you a lot more than $400. So depending on the volume of what you have 
Sometimes it can even make sense to do it yourself. The Wolverine is a fairly user-friendly piece of equipment. There are libraries, unfortunately not any I am aware of at this point in Rhode Island, but a lot of libraries around the country are now more and more having what's known as memory labs. And basically in the same way that you, you know, go to a library to use a laptop computer and access the internet, they have these memory labs where you can book time and they often involve video transfer stations. That's usually more for VH, video eight, stuff like that, high eight, as opposed to film. But, you know, that's something that quite truthfully, I would be very interested in setting up for Rhode Island, partnering with the Providence Public Library, for example, and trying to get them set up with a memory lab. Um, uh, absolutely. And because I'm lecturing all over the place, mm-hmm. uh, a places tell me they have memory labs and I think yeah. why don't we have a memory lab why don't we have a, exactly why don't I'll we donate have a memory some lab? equipment <laughs> right right I mean I'll it help takes... you get that up and running because people love it I just yeah. spoke at the Cuyahoga Public Library South Euclid branch and they mm-hmm. have a memory lab and they yeah. gave me a tour of the memory lab and they have they do everything there it's a little room yeah. it's yep. not a huge it's not huge space yep yep yeah, no, I mean, I, there actually is a pretty wonderful memory lab network sort of within the audiovisual archiving community. A friend of mine actually who runs it at the, the DC public library has now actually started expanding out to elsewhere in the country and is consulting. And is, so there is a lot of expansion of, of AV memory labs around the country, you know, and I think for, you know, that generally is in the videotape world as, you know, and, and personal photos, still photographs, scanning and such, as opposed to celluloid film. But I think that sometimes finding an archive, maybe it's the Rhode Island Historical Society or maybe it's another entity who might be interested in your family's home movies because let's say they depict, you know, daily life in Cumberland in the 1960s or something. There's also potentially ways of thinking about are your home movies something that could have historical value outside of your family? And is that a way for you to get access to them yourself and also share them with wider audiences. I mean, the the reason why we at the Historical Society are particularly interested in expanding our home movie collection collecting is because, as I said, the most of our collections are depicted from the perspective of the mainstream media. Mainstream media, historically, not been particularly interested in people of color and other marginalized communities. Or if they were, it was looking at oftentimes things because of what was perceived as crime riddled neighborhoods, et cetera. So when you think about home movies, right. And you think about a black family in South Providence depicting itself in the 1960s, or do we have, are there home movies of the Chinatown that used to exist in Providence that no longer exist because the Chinese community itself was shooting there. These are ways that we get the stories of marginalized people, people who are traditionally not represented in archives, not represented by the mainstream media. We can get those stories into our history and, you know, into the hands of the various creators and scholars and personal users who are our patrons of places like this. Well, so not only that, but a picture is one thing, but seeing someone move in a movie gives you a whole new understanding of who they are as a person. Yes. I did digitize all our home movies. And then I had two home movie days with older family members. Mm -hmm. 
I actually bought a screen on eBay on Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> I'm like really added to the uh, amount of equipment I have in the house <laughs> and showed the movies and it was just wonderful for everyone to see like an uncle who hasn't been around for a very long time his sense of humor and play with his siblings and it's it was just charming it gives us insight into everyday life that a photograph yep you go from like an engraving to a photograph it's a whole new level of understanding but to go from a still photograph to a moving image that's very different Yep. Like you were saying, an underserved community. Yeah. Suddenly you're seeing home movies of exactly how life was lived, how yep. my family lived, how your family lived. They're worth, they're worth saving. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, so often, I mean, I, my background is that I worked in documentary film for many, many years before I became an archivist and I did a lot of work as an archival producer. So, so, so much of the time, you're looking for just what did it look like on the South side of Chicago in the 1960s, right? And home movies are the things that show us that. It's not because why were the news cameras on the South side of Chicago in the 1960s? They were there because there was some sort of event that they were covering. An event is a very different thing than daily life. Very different, very, very different. But now it's like so often that's what we're looking for. We just want to know what did life look like? I mean, the last project I worked on before I I switched over to becoming an archivist was a series called Black America since MLK. And it was a Black history that kind of went from 1965 to 2015. It was a PBS series. One of the most difficult things to find was depictions of the Black middle class in the 1980s. Because we were in a home movie moment, actually, when people were shooting less home movies, quite truthfully, because we were sort of in that transitional moment from switching from film to videotape. Not that many people had videotape yet. And the media wasn't looking at the Black middle class. So you need home movies. What did that, what did that look like? And home movies are, are really what, what show you that. So Becca... Do yes. you, thank you for sharing all this information, but do you have a favorite home movie of your own? So there's actually, there's a pretty good collection of home movies in my dad's family. I'm pretty impressed with how much material there is. My, my personal favorite that I did actually digitize on one of those Wolverines recently is of my dad and his pet red squirrel named Irving in the 1950s. So when I was growing up, my dad would always talk about this pet squirrel that he had, who had fallen out of a nest. Somebody in the neighborhood, I think, found this baby red squirrel that had fallen out of the nest and knew that my dad's family was kind of into, you know, things like taking care of random wild animals. Brought the baby red squirrel over. My dad raised the baby red squirrel from an eyedrop, you know, feeding it with an eyedropper. And this red squirrel lived with them for some amount of time until eventually it, it actually did take off. But there's a wonderful home movie of my dad and this red squirrel just sort of climbing all over my dad. And then it jumps over and you can see it jump over to my grandmother's arm. My grandmother, who I never met, she died when I was about six months old. And yeah, just this, you know, it's just sort of out in the yard with this red squirrel kind of running all over. And my dad, who looks about probably 10 at the time. And it's just incredibly charming. And and because it was such a part of my childhood to hear about Irving the red squirrel, to then, as you say, to see Irving in motion, 
is amazing. Yeah, to see um, Irving in motion and to see how the family interacted with Irving. Yeah, 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 yeah. completely. Well, I want to thank you for being on the photo detective a second time. My pleasure. Talking about that very important topic of archiving your personal life. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully more, more help and services to come from other entities. We're all still sort of figuring this out, I think, for ourselves, the digital, how do we do this for ourselves in the digital world? But we know we need to help create resources to, for people to kind of know, know the best steps for it. So yeah. In general around the world. Yes. That too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. Leave me a rating and a review. And if you know of a friend or family member who's also interested in family photographs, share this episode with them too. See you next time. I'm thrilled to be offering something new. Photo Investigations. These collaborative one-on-one sessions look at your family photos. You and I meet to discuss your mystery images and find out how each clue and hint might contribute to your family history. And trust me, these images can reveal so much in your research. I have decades of experience in the photo, genealogy, and history industries. This is your chance to learn from me and discover the stories in your family images. You can find out more by going to MaureenTaylor.com and clicking on Family Photo Investigations.